Hello and welcome to Angelica Love's Conversations. My name is Angelica Love. I am a social psychologist and I research friendships that cross social divides. I'm recording this podcast at a time when many of you might be worrying that our world is getting more and more divided. Rifts within societies are widening, dialogue is dying, and we all seem to be stuck in ever more tightly sealed echo chambers. Well, my aim with this podcast is to show you that all is not lost. There is a lot that you and I can do to build bridges between those parts of society that feel increasingly far apart. In fact, many people around the world, and in really ingenious ways, are doing just that kind of bridge building already. This podcast features conversations with them. In this episode, you're going to learn about bionic ears, why advances in medicine might inadvertently hamper integration, and how you could supercharge your own speech in order to make yourself better understood. For me personally, I loathe the idea of hiding a disability, especially because it's not a cure by any matter of means, yeah. so you're still deaf. And you know, the better a user you are of the cock implant, the more double-edged the sort becomes, actually, because people think they don't necessarily realise you're deaf. They go, Oh, you're talking by and you seem to be hearing me by and then yeah. why why did you give why such a make strange a- answer? What you see is what you're getting. And then by the way, there's this additional part to me which may not compute, but you don't need to be scared, because number one, I'm talking with you, you're understanding me, I'm understanding you, I'm obviously <laughs> smart, I know my stuff. Yeah. And it really helps having the doctor time to in that regard, because you know that's a whole next level of recognition absolutely so and then go oh by the way i'm deaf so if i say anything strange or reply strangely it's probably because i misheard you so don't worry just let me know and ask me the question again and i'll let you know if i'm not hearing you That was the auditory neuroscientist, Dr. Helen Willis. Helen is an expert on how the brain processes sound, and she's especially knowledgeable when it comes to understanding how the cochlear implant, the bionic ear, affects its deaf users. Helen uses a cochlear implant herself. She became completely deaf at the age of just 19 months when she contracted meningitis and then lived in silence for over one and a half years. But when she was three years old, Helen became one of the very first people to receive a bionic ear, a cochlear implant. Helen is plugged into the deaf community, but she also navigates the world of sound very competently. So she's a bit of a go-betweener and and a really excellent source, I think, of wisdom when it comes to understanding more about integration. I really loved this conversation with her, and I hope you do too. Helen, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. Well, thank you for the invite. Yes. So some of the members of our audience might be wondering how you process my speech right now. So would you mind introducing us to your experience of listening? Okay. It's a bit, it's a bit of an odd one because I had the cocaine pound since such an early age. So what I think, what I hear is what I think is normal, but it's anything but. You can actually look on YouTube, like simulations, where they try to recreate the cocaine pound sound for you. And um, people have said it sounds like Daleks talking to you, sort of this kind of distorted, uh, 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 
A very but, mechanical Exactly, sound. exactly. So very, it, there's no real kind of natural fluctuations, rise and sort of smoothness that you hear in the English language. Because see, and even the human voice, the timbre, the richness, we don't really get that. The cochlear plant is able to pick up very basic pitch and very basic frequencies and very basic properties, but nothing more than that. So my brain has to work over time to fill in the gaps and it does extremely well. So it sounds rich and normal with nice fluctuations. So you sound delightful. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a cochlear implant, which is, well, you described it as a bit of a prosthetic limb for, for people who don't have natural hearing. Mm. And can you describe to people who are not familiar with what the cochlear implant is, yeah. how it looks and what it does? So what it does is that it bypasses the damage in the ear. So what um, you got is this tiny device about you know the size of your palm, and it's made of silicon, mm -hmm. and it's got a small metal plate, and it sits underneath a skin flap just behind your ear. Mm -hmm. And from there are tiny little threads of electrodes, and what the, they do is they have surgery. And you thread those electrodes into the cochlea, so deep inside your inner ear. And the cochlea is the size of a pea. Okay. And they, it's tiny. And they thread it through inside there. Because in the cochlea is where all your normal hair cells are that process the sound and sends into sort of electrical impulses up to the brain. Yeah. So um, what the cochlear implant does is that it tries to do the job with those hair cells and sends electrical impulses. And it's an artificial electrical stimulation of the ear mm -hmm. and it's just a, it does a very basic breakdown of sound into its frequencies yeah. and tries to send it up there. So because you said that the signal that you get into your brain of the sound waves I produce when I ask you questions is quite impoverished, you also supplement the auditory input with visual input? Absolutely, and contacts. And, um, would that be lip reading? Or? Absolutely, absolutely. I think actually be, they now call lip reading speech reading because they now realise that lip reading is only one small part. A whole body is read. You know, so I'm reading your body right now you know, and I'll be thinking about the context. I'll be trying to pick up any additional cues. And of course, I've been using past experience. So, you know, I'll have our shared memories and our shared experiences to use as a frame of reference. Yeah. So you just use all of that. So your brain is working over time. Yeah. And everyone does this. Everyone naturally speech reads. Yeah. But we just take it to that next level to go, right, we need to put in more information yeah. from that. Yeah. And when you say we, let's talk a little bit about the deaf community in the UK. It's, it's a very distinct community. I think it has quite a prominent culture. How do you fit into that community? Again, a bit of an odd one because I wasn't born deaf. So um, for some members of the community, they think I was never part of them anyway because I wasn't naturally deaf. I wasn't born deaf. Mm -hmm. I became deaf. So I was already hearing some, already part of the hearing world. So at the very, very extreme, I'll go into a room full of deaf members that are deaf with a big D, as they say, you know, capital D. Do they? Yeah, literally. And mm -hmm. um, actually you may see on signage, you know, but for example, in cinemas or theatres, there are captions for the deaf, and you often see small d, forward slash, big d. Oh. And it addresses those who identify themselves as deaf, as in culturally speaking, as well as physically speaking, okay. versus those that are just deaf because it isn't acquired hearing loss. Mm -hmm. And they wouldn't naturally accept you in, as part of that capital D deaf community? Yeah. 
but others are, are more fluid and go, mm-hmm. no, you're deaf. You, you became us anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me personally, I feel like I'm not... I don't just identify myself as deaf. I identify myself with the hearing world as well because yeah. my family are all hearing. I'm the only deaf member. Yeah. So I don't feel purely deaf. Yeah. And actually the culture and the mentality, you have to have grown up in it and have family part of that community to really feel integrated in that culture. So I feel like a bit of a visitor, a welcomed visitor. Yeah. And a honorary member to a certain extent Mm -hmm. but not a true member and what is the reaction I mean we're generalizing hugely here but what Mm. is the perception and reaction of the cochlear implant in the deaf community oh it was received really badly when it first came it was um at the most extreme they called it surgical rape because um at the time the surgery had to happen very, very early, so you couldn't get the child's permission. The child wouldn't understand, mm-hmm. you know, three-year-old kid. So um, it's a parent deciding, I don't want you to grow up deaf. Exactly. And they went, oh, how dare you? How dare you make such a big monumental decision about the child's identity? And then on top of that, inflict, and at the time the surgery was much more major than these days, it's not, it's this tiny incision behind the ears, like a, a one centimetre incision just right there, you yeah. can't see it anymore. But in those days, it was a fairly extensive operation where you have quite a big scar kind of go, going all around the half of your head, yeah. and this is this massive skin black. So it, it's usually It looks invasive. like you've been butchered. Yeah, and the idea that you would not want to grow up deaf is also controversial in that regard absolutely absolutely and they were just really scared that the cochlear implant technology was going to eradicate the community mm-hmm. actually nowadays though they now realize that cochlear implant can't possibly remove that identity because it's not a cure it yeah. doesn't fix the yeah. problem it just helps so they're becoming a bit more receptive more and more and more are opting for the cochlear implant mm-hmm. and going actually i need a bit of help and as you see it's another way of accessing sound or accessing the world that even though i'm not part of and don't want to be part of it's useful to have access to okay so it's a bit more integrated even then and of course you are still engaging with the deaf community you use bsl british sign language absolutely um, which is its whole whole separate language i think we must especially as at a later part in our conversation, we'll come to a different form of signing, but mm. BSL is a, is a language in its own right. Absolutely. And you can switch off. Absolutely. Literally switch off, can't hear a thing. And it is literally silence. And for me, it's a sanctuary. What part of your day would you say you usually spend in silence? <laughs> These days, I must admit, if I'm on my own walking around or in a, if I have no need to listen to anything or no need to talk to anyone, I'm off. Wow. Okay. So it's a fairly high proportion of the day. Usually when I was growing up, it was usually in the evenings when, you know, we had a long day and I'd be chilling, watching telly or just winding down for the evening. Then that would be switched off. Yeah. But it grew. The need to switch off grew over time, especially when I started challenging myself academically. Let's get on to that because you acquired speech quite late. How old were you when you started speaking? Oh, gosh. Um... I became age-appropriate when I was nine. Yeah, so you had a lot of catching up to do until the age of nine. Mm. But you defied many expectations and actually excelled academically. Mm. You went on to go to Oxford to study psychology and physiology. And in fact, that's actually where we met. You were in the year above me. (laughs) Oxford is a place of words in many ways, wouldn't you say? Oh, God, Um, yes. And... So how would you describe your experience of studying at Oxford and such an academically and also 
auditorially challenging environment. Did you find it easy to navigate that world of sound? I did and I didn't. What I loved about Oxford was everyone embraced study, everyone embraced language, because to me, language is so precious. It took so long to get it, and I hate it when people kind of just take it for granted. Yeah. But they didn't hear. Yeah. So I was able to embrace the language with other people who also embraced the language. So I loved learning everything here, but I was utterly exhausted at the end of the day. I was, I would be mentally crippled. It did mean that I occasionally missed out to socialise in the evenings, especially that kind of late night clubbing, that sort of thing. That was just not my thing at all. My brain would just be screaming at me to switch off yeah. and to sleep. Yeah, and we'll get to that listening effort, I think, that you're mm. describing there in a moment. But even more practically, did you have any support studying at Oxford, I imagine it must be very, like, logistically quite challenging to listen to a lecturer, give a, a lecture, and to take notes and to process the information all at the same time. Oh, absolutely. It's like juggling a hundred balls at the same time. I found that, for me personally, having BSL interpretation was completely useless because um, even though I was fluent in BSL, British Sign Language, the translators, they can't actually provide a translation, they provide an interpretation. Okay. Because BSL has its own grammar, it has its own vocabulary, it has its own structure, that you can't directly translate the English spoken word into signs. So you have the interpreter actually choosing oh. what information to give you. And I was like, no, I need to choose my own information, I need to choose what I'm going to learn, I don't want some approximation of what the lecturer is saying. Yeah. So I went, okay. Exams aren't designed based on what the BSL interpreter gives you. <laughs> exactly, and I've seen some barely dodgy ones, because of course a lot of these BSL interpreters are not necessarily scientists by training. No, exactly. Um, and then most of them were teachers to death, or... Um, you know, there was one who was an historian, another one who was a mathematician, and they're in a neuroscience lecture trying to deal with terminology like the hippocampus and the amygdala. Mm-hmm. And it's a recipe for disaster. So yeah. I went, how am I going to do this? And I thought the best way of doing it is to have two types of note takers. One is an electronic note taker that types really vast and gives you an almost live transcript of what is being said as it's being said. Wow. So it's almost like subtitles, but it's mm-hmm. only... They can only type so much, but it gives me an idea, it helps keep up the lecture. But because I'm so busy watching the lecture, lip-reading what they're saying, and looking at the screen and the, all the live subtitling, I can't take my own notes. Yeah. And I was going, this is not good. So what I do is I, <laughs> and it was a very unconventional request at the time, and it took a bit of convincing, I got a second type of note-taker at the same time, a summary note-taker who do bullet point summaries of what the lecturer is saying on each PowerPoint slide, for example. And that together was enough information just about for me afterwards when I'm doing various assignments or revision or doing my essays or pursuing further reading and going, Mm. hang on, what was that lecturer saying at that particular point in time? Oh, that's how that works. Wow. (laughs) Did you have any backlash from the hearing community here? about that sort of extra provision? Actually, no. Everyone was remarkably welcoming. The only time that I came into slight problem, because what I also loved about Oxford was they made sure that my access was truly equal to okay. all the other students. So that, that not so not only did that mean that I wasn't disadvantaged, I didn't have an unfair advantage over my fellow 
able to peers. Yeah. And one time I asked, can I please have an electronic note taker in the tutorial itself? And one of the tutors said no. And I went, ah, this is going to be a problem. And I asked, why? And, just, and she said, I was really worried that if you have the electronic note taker, that typing furiously is going to interfere with the dynamics of the students in the tutorial because yeah. it's going to be just three of us. Yeah. It would be very off-putting to hear someone. And they are loud. That keys clutching going, <laughs> it's very off-putting. And they, also they all know they're being recorded, so they might not yeah. necessarily be as open or be willing to ask perhaps questions that they're being embarrassed about. I see. So I went, okay. Not we, everything needs to be on the record. Exactly. Yeah. So I went, it's a, a way of finding a compromise because I was trying to make sure that, you know, I got equal access, but I didn't want it to be at the cost of the others. And we agreed that I'm allowed to record the tutorials and then get transcribed. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that worked. The only thing with that was there's a certain time lag because for every hour of recording, it takes four hours of typing. Yeah, yeah. And that's even with really experienced, really fast typers. Yeah. So we're talking about integration really as a way for you to um, to access the information and the, the, the culture ultimately that that is the, the world of words of Oxford. Hmm. Ultimately, I think it's quite challenging to think of that as integration because it's more of a form of assimilation, right? You're trying to amend your own experiences to the extent that it becomes as closely matched as possible to that of your default, quote-unquote default, mm. culture that is that of the, the hearing. I want to get back to that in a moment, but first of all, let's get back to this question of listening effort. You described it as being knackered at the end of the day, mm. um, really enjoying the experience of switching off. Now, you didn't just experience this personally but you actually made this your quest throughout your PhD at the University College London to understand listening effort better. What are your highlight takeaways from the research you did at UCL? That is hard work to listen to a croquet plan. So you quantified it for the first time? Yeah I actually was able to make the what was known implicitly explicit and what the biggest takeaway actually is not only does the brain have to work harder to cope with the cocking planting noise, it starts the moment when you switch on, even in quiet, even right now, this is perfect, this conditions are in a, um, in a quiet room. room, everything's kind of being soundproofed, you know, it's ideal, but my brain's having to work that bit harder. And I had managed to get data to show that for everyone um, because the, the argument being was oh, I'm technically an old cocking plant user I got the old cocking plant technology. Well you were one of the first ones to get it in the UK. Exactly right? and the internal implant has not been changed since then it's wow. 25 years old. Holding Had up well. birthday in February actually. Mm. <laughs> I bought myself a necklace to celebrate. Oh very good. <laughs> Um, so, you know, there, there are great worries because you've got the old technology, the new technology is better, surely, or you only got one ear versus both ears been implanted. Mm-hmm. Um, because at the time, they left one ear just in case of future technology or future cure, and they didn't want to mess up the other ear. Oh. So that's why. Leaving a door open, leaving an ear open. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So only hatches the one. So the people are all geologists were arguing, well, you, of course you're having to work hard. You've got the old technology. you only got one ear. Yeah, fair enough. But I was going, actually, no, it applies to everyone. If you've got both ears, if, if you were implanted as a baby, because mm-hmm. I was three, that's actually quite late yeah. in terms of neurodevelopment. So, I mean, I was 
really disadvantaged on so many fronts. But I was going, actually, unfortunately, even though the technology is amazing and I'm by no means an enemy of the technology, I love it. I wouldn't be here today talking to you. Mm-hmm. It's just being aware of its limitations. And if you know the limits of a tool, then you can really optimise how you use that tool. And that's what I'm passionate about. I want people to really be able to benefit from the technology, but also understand their limits. And I was able to show, because I deliberately recruited a very wide range of different types of cocky implant users. So I Im- recruited those that got their implants later on in life in, mm-hmm. as adults. So mm-hmm. they only had five years of experience, mm-hmm. but they had a whole lifetime of hearing and then yeah. they became deaf. Mm-hmm. Or those that had it at, from babyhood mm-hmm. in both ears. Mm-hmm. Or experienced high listening effort in quiet and then put noise in, it becomes almost game over if you're not careful. So I had data to show that and finally was able to prove to myself because I did always wonder since from an early age, which is what drove the quest to that PhD level, I was wondering, am I doing something wrong? Mm -hmm. Am I using the cocking plant wrong? Why am I so tired? Mm -hmm. So even though I'm speaking well, I'm doing well, academically speaking, I'm exhausted, and my body's being the cost. Am I doing something wrong? So I was like, no, I need need to find a way of measuring this. And the ridiculous thing is we haven't got a clinical test already available measuring this. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. So would you say that when somebody can get a personalised assessment of their own listening effort, that is then used as a way of recommending other form of compensatory measures like relaxation, mindfulness recommendations for how often to switch it off is that is that what the test would be used for in my mind yes yeah and but from the audiologist's point of view the whole idea of switching off and not using your cochlear implant is a terrifying notion you're going for goodness sake we returned the hearing to you use it and there's the this notion of if you don't use it you lose it yeah and to a certain degree they're right you do need to train your brain your brain needs to learn how yeah. to use the technology but at the same time, though, there's no point vlogging a dead horse, you know. If the brain is utterly exhausted, it's not going to be able to benefit. Yeah. So it's identifying, because everyone's unique in how they process sound and everyone's unique in their limits in terms of how much listening they can do and how much cognitive processing they can do yeah. before the brain goes, actually, can I have a break now? Yeah, so there's a tipping point where the cost-benefit analysis turns against your favour. Exactly. Okay. So that, that's... that's um, really exciting to hear and I'm super curious to see where you take this because it has huge implications for for the community of cochlear implant users. Mm. Now returning to I guess our own relationship a little bit Mm. you and I became friends eight years ago which I find (laughs) just pretty awesome being in our late 20s as we are and I personally find that being friends with you has taught me a lot about communication. Mm. And because it has, for the first time, made me think really hard about whether or not what I say is actually heard. And of course, communication is a two-way street. We all know that. Mm. It needs to be a closed loop where a message is sent and you get confirmation that it has been received properly. And with you, um, it's pretty obvious when I haven't spoken clearly (laughs) enough um, because you might answer a totally different question. And that is my responsibility to check up on. And so um, I'm super grateful for the experience um, of having that intergroup friendship, ultimately being friends with somebody whose life experience is very different from my own. I've benefited from that personally. 
and I reckon that people who um, only know you more fleetingly would also, maybe in a, to a lesser extent, have that kind of experience. Now, there is a trend in cochlear implant design and in the design of hearing aids to make them ever smaller, ever more invisible. Mm. And I personally would love to hear your thoughts on that and whether you think it's, it hinders or, um, or aids integration. Ooh. I Again, or a tricky one. For me personally, I loathe the idea of hiding a disability, especially because it's not a cure by any matter of means. Yeah. So you're still deaf, and you know the better a user you are of the cochlear implant, the more double-edged the sort becomes. Actually, because people think, oh, they don't necessarily realise you're deaf. They go, oh, you're talking by, and you seem to be hearing me by, and then yeah. why? Why did you? Why should I make a strange extra, answer? Or why should I make extra provisions for you? Exactly. Mm. So and then so if you're hiding a hearing aid, it's because it becomes more than actually worth the manufacturers is considering doing this total implanted cock implant device where everything's on the inside and they're trying to work out how to get the microphone close enough to the surface of the scalp to be able to pick up sound mm. but you can't see a thing. So your cochlear implant currently is visible. Yes. And you actually carry it very visibly. You have your hair up. Yeah. It's not something you're trying to hide. No. You are actually um, a, a ballroom dancer yourself so I've seen you which is amazing given that you hear music so differently from how I would hear it. Totally different story. You could do a whole separate podcast on that. <laughs> but I have seen you dress up your cochlear implant <laughs> yes. adding little sparkles to it and like really, you know making the most of it. So Mm. No, as I say, I've been very open about it. Actually, um, one of the earlier, because um, the external device can get updated and um, upgraded. And one of my previous versions, you actually had different coloured covers. Oh, and I was happily synchronised, going, I'm wearing pink today. I'm therefore going to coordinate and have pink as well. There you go. And I just loved it. And I was really upset when they upgraded me and went, no, you don't have that colour option anymore. Oh, and I was flesh like, how dare only. you? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like 25 years old at the time. I was like, Helen, really? But still. Yeah. But so I am not quite unusual the, in that. You're not for the invisibility necessarily. Absolutely not. I'm quite unusual about um, in that regard because I've got quite a few friends that will try to just kind of just disappear in the crowd. Like, for example, in a lecture theatre, they won't go to the front row, even though they need to be in the front row. Mm. They'll go back and sit there. They have remote electronic note-taking, where the electronic note-taker is actually not there in the room. Yeah. They're probably in a different town, yeah. but doing it by Skype. And I just feel that it's a shame, number one, to be to feel you have to hide, to feel you have to fit in, when actually you're already fitting in buying. Yeah. It's just one small thing that's different. And... And unfortunately, people like myself would miss out on an opportunity for actually learning. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. so that's where integration doesn't become assimilation, it becomes actual integration. That's the thing. Because I'm changing my way in order to, well, be close to you. Mm. Rather than you, benefit both of us. Absolutely, rather than, than you changing your way in order to match my system. That's the thing. Yeah. How, how would you go about shaping that conversation? It, it depends. What I tend to do is I kind of preface it with something quite usual. Like for example, if I were nowadays, what I tend to do is if I'm meeting someone brand new, mm -hmm. I'll go, I'm Dr. Helen Willis, recently graduated from Oxford. So I go, right, okay, she's obviously smart, you know, she's obviously. <laughs> because there are some there's some really odd stereotypes being associated with deafness. Very much so, just sort of deaf and dumb yeah. or um deaf therefore you can't talk properly um deaf therefore you can't hear me at all yeah or um all sorts and it's 
trying to navigate and people don't, don't necessarily do it explicitly they don't realize they're no, doing they don't. it it's mm. all completely automatic yeah. mm. so i try to reinforce look what you see is what you're getting and then by the way there's this additional part to me which may not compute but you don't need to be scared because number one i'm talking with you you're understanding me i'm understanding you i'm obviously <laughs> smart i know my stuff yeah and it really helps having the doctor type to in that regard because you know that's a whole next level of recognition absolutely so and then go oh by the way i'm deaf so if i say anything strange or reply strangely it's probably because i misheard you so don't worry just let me know yeah. And ask me the question again. Yeah. And I'll let you know if I'm not hearing you. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of helps them to navigate their implicit stereotypes. Yeah. And you don't need to pretend you can't see it because, look, I'm wearing my cochlear implant. It's, it's obvious and I don't mind it being obvious. Exactly. Yeah. It's a fascinating uh, conversation to have as medicine becomes more and more advanced and as mm. treatments become more and more non-invasive and small incisions and, you know, keyhole surgery and everything is becoming ever smaller. So in order to minimize, I guess, the physiological impact, but also ultimately um, help people stay as close to the quote-unquote normal mm. as we would like. But as you say, sometimes that can actually make integration more and more difficult oddly absolutely. paradoxically we wouldn't expect it yes. to but yeah absolutely that's a really important point to note i think mm. so recently you started to focus on another tool of creating more integrated communication mm. tell me about cued speech yes um cued speech has actually been around for a long time it was around when i was first step and my parents were um, seeking different communication solutions but it wasn't high profile so my parents actually didn't realise yeah. it existed but cue speech is another way of visualising language mm -hmm. but in you could argue a more faintful way because what it does is it breaks down each word into its component sounds and indicates each component sound with a hand shape so whereas BSL is a whole separate language in its own right. Cued speech is a way of using hand gestures to make the spoken word, say English, mm. accessible visually as well. Exactly. Exactly. And it's a tool to aid lip reading. So you can't do cued speech without lip reading. Okay. So basically it disambiguates lip reading because when you lip read on its own, you only get about 40% of the spoken language. Because shapes, um, the same lip shape is associated with the different sounds. Exactly. So what the cues, um hand shapes do is for each group of um, phonemes that have similar lip shapes but different sounds, it has a, hand, a separate hand shape in that position to indicate, right, in this particular moment in time, this is an, an ambiguous sound, mm -hmm. it's this one. Mm -hmm. So M, B and P exactly. all have the closed lips and you would you would add your hand to your mouth when you speak to disambiguate exactly what this shape means okay so it is a tool that somebody who would be hearing would use to communicate better with somebody who is deaf absolutely absolutely and it's and they're now trying to encourage it to become a two-way street that it can be a way of deaf person helping to make themselves clearer oh. to a hearing person okay. so trying to make it a bit more of a not just this one-way thing. Because, of course, communication is a two-way street. I only came into key speech really late because so, um, where the bounders discovered my work, my PhD work, they saw a lecture <laughs> and they asked me to come and talk about my work on one of their open days. And 
we very quickly realised that we had very similar agenda in terms of our passion of integrating deaf children and adults into the hearing world, making sure that um, the load, that the cockpit press, the listening effort is recognised and trying to ease communication for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. And, they were, and they were saying how much my research helped them, which was so lovely to hear. They go, you helped us to show how hard work it is to be deaf. Yeah. And therefore, it gives us an even stronger rationale to use Q-speech yeah. and get funds to train up more teachers to get out there more. Because as I say, it's very low profile. And I felt really ashamed that I didn't know about it. So I'm now currently learning it myself okay. with my father Brilliant. and just making sure I'm having a way off the time. And it is really interesting because I learned language unconventionally. So I, I managed to get there in the end, but I didn't learn sort of the way that you would have. So With speech therapy and with a lot of extra help? Or what do you mean by unconventionally? So a lot of speech therapy, just a lot of watching people's lips move and try and putting my hands on my throat and trying to feel my voice box and being it vibrate and just using ex-official cues. And I, I become, it became very sensitive body language mm-hmm. and it almost becomes like a performance to talk. I, I sort of I'm exercising certain muscles and I've memorised how it feels in certain parts of my head and my throat when I produce certain sounds, which then helps me to get me the consistency in speech. But even then, the consistency is not always there. People often think I have an accent. I have a slight twang. <laughs> <That's hilarious. laughs> are you Austrian? Are you Australian? Are you Swedish? I had all sorts. And I'm going, no, I'm just deaf. <laughs> Yeah. I'm very English, very English family. You can't get more English than me. I'm just deaf. It's okay. Just, so, so this would have helped you understand which which lips lip shapes and the associated meaning mm-hmm. actually sound the same versus sound different. Exactly. That's that's fascinating because again, for um, a hearing person like myself, it would be a way of changing my own behavior in order to accommodate somebody else. Mm-hmm. So it's again not just. Well, it's not BSL, which is often used between deaf people with each other Mm -hmm. or parents with their deaf children. Yeah. But it's hard to learn. It's not something that friends would necessarily pick up in order to communicate with a deaf friend. Absolutely. Whereas cute speech is something that everybody can learn and apparently you can learn it with relative ease as soon as you have an understanding of what phonemes and sound units are. Exactly. Yeah, and now you're an ambassador for them? I am, yes, I'm actually a patron. They asked me, to get, can you please be our patron? Because when using your research, we want to pay you in some way. Wow. So how about we make you a patron? And I was like, I really don't have to. I'm just pleased that my research is helping. But yeah, I'm officially a patron for them. That's and currently learning cute speech very actively. And it, um, we're kind of doing it with a almost a pseudo experiment to see whether it helps reduce my listening effort if I use oh. cue speech so that's why my father is learning it with me we're going to once we both become proficient see whether it helps with my listening effort and perhaps reduce my need to switch off and so then you can use the test that your research might ultimately lead to in order to quantify exactly. that improvement that's wonderful how it all comes full, full circle in it the end it really is so to wrap up this wonderful conversation. Do you have any questions um, that you think our listeners should ask themselves um, in relation to the subject, maybe a call to action related to integration? Ooh, I suppose 
just really think about what your brain is doing and the amount of cognitive processing you're having to cope with in your everyday lives. Because we live in this world of sensory bombardment. It's insanely noisy. There's all these colours, there's all this confusion and all this busyness. How much work is your brain having to do to cope with all of that? And then what happens if you make put something else on top of that, for example, deafness, blindness, it doesn't matter, it does, it's not exclusively deafness as an issue here. Just what happens if something just that bit harder put on top of that, it could become the store that breaks the camel's back. Mm. And that ultimately can help you increase your own empathy towards people who have to cope with that every day. Precisely. Thank you so much for joining the conversation, Helen. Thank you.